Come with us as we dive deep into silent service. This week on the Upper Memory Block Podcast. So what shall it be? Do you join the unity or do you die here? Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 61 of the Upper Memory Block podcast. I'm your host, Joe, back with you, as always, to talk about a game from the DOS and pre-Windows XP gaming era. So I'm back a little sooner than usual because uh, I guess last week, was it, we put out the, uh, I put out, I keep saying we, but it's really only me. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, me and my me and my crack team of uh, podcast producers and editors and researchers uh, work very, very hard to get this show out to you uh, every 19 odd days. And uh, anyways, uh, yeah, just uh, last week we had that, uh, the Patreon news show for November, the News Digest, which... Uh, I know a lot of you guys uh, got back to me, said you quite enjoyed it, and um, I'm pretty happy with the way it turned out, and uh, you know, if you guys have any suggestions for future shows, you know, different music I could put in there, obviously news stories, different things you might want to talk about, those will come out on a monthly basis, kind of near-ish to the end of the month, looks like around the 20th, kind of like that, um, just doing a digest of news from the last show, so um yeah, that turned out pretty well. Pretty pleased with it. And uh, it's one week later, and I'm back with the promised show, uh, the regular UMB cast that you all know and hopefully love. Um, weather-wise, since I always talk about weather at the beginning of the show, uh, today's been a little bit weird, actually. Uh, we were having winter. We had snow on the ground. It was super cold and whatever. And then today, it was very nice and warm. So uh, my wife and I actually took our bikes out, went for a little bike ride. Uh, we thought we were all done that for the year, but, uh, you know, had tons of fun and, uh, it's supposed to go down to minus two Celsius tonight, just below freezing. So, uh, I guess we got our chance and now, uh, that's all over. So since we don't do the news on the show anymore, cause of, uh, cause of the show from last week, the news digest, uh, let's get straight into emails. So we just got one email this week and it is from Ed and Ed writes, I've been listening to your podcast for a few weeks now. Great stuff. I must say, though, I've had a hard time finding your forums. Uh, recently, I thought you alluded to weighing in on the whole Star Citizen and Elite mentioned in your podcast. However, I couldn't find anything at your site directing me there. Uh, perhaps it's me and I misunderstood, or my eyes aren't what they used to be, but uh, I was looking forward to putting my two cents in on the whole Kickstarter experience. Anyways, I'm a contributor on both projects, and so far I've found the Star Citizen one a bit frustrating. Uh, I was an early sign-on for Chris Roberts being a huge fan of the Wing Commander series and, uh, to an extent, uh, Privateer and Strike Commander. I've been part of the access for the Hangar and Dogfight beta. I also backed Elite uh, somewhat more modestly, though still signed up for the early beta. So here's my take anyways. Star Citizen is an incredibly ambitious project. I do believe with a high-end system that it's going to be absolutely fantastic. I have an Asus G75V gaming laptop, GTX 670M graphics processor, and uh, have to lower the settings in order to get a smooth experience. I'm hoping it's just because everything is beta and the code isn't optimized yet. 
The project itself seems to be a hit with the fans and has been marketed extremely well, considering that even after the Kickstarter, it continues to rake in millions, yes, millions of dollars on a monthly basis. Elite Dangerous, this was a complete surprise to me. The graphics are outstanding and don't tax my system. It's less ambitious than Star Citizen. However, it still has all the features that I'm looking forward to in Star Citizen, but they seem more polished at this point, being less ambitious. As to the standalone aspect of Elite, personally, I could care less. It was an online experience that, uh, or it was the online experience that I was intrigued with. I think this one will definitely be a hit and it's close to going live. Now, if I can have a moment, I didn't realize there was a Red Baron Kickstarter. I found it after desperately clicking links on your site to find the forums. I was very upset that I missed this one. My $50 wouldn't have made a difference, but I couldn't believe that such an outstanding game wasn't funded. This was the first true flight sim I ever fell in love with. I've bought it off GOG and would have been ecstatic if it could have been updated to the newer graphics capabilities while still having the same gameplay and physics. Uh, I believe this is one of the games I played as uh, with a twisted pair networking cable. Remember those? Thanks for the great podcast. Uh, you had me at Willy Beamish. I played it on my Amiga. Keep up the great work. Love the newscast. And I'm looking forward to your silent service review. Thanks, Ed. Well, thank you, Ed. Um, yeah, so, you know, you're kind of of the same uh, ilk or same uh, thought as me on uh, on Star Citizen. You know, it is it is a little bit frustrating because, again, Chris Roberts, being Chris Roberts, says, I'm going to give you the world. I'm going to give you the greatest space simulator, action, FPS, space trading, world exploring, space combat experience extravaganza in the history of the world. And then... You know, he shows us a little bit, he shows us another little bit, and another little bit, and, yeah, you know, it's just, I want something that I can play that isn't just a demo, and, you know, Elite is doing a really good job, I agree, I haven't gotten in, but um, I think I'm just going to hold off till it goes live and then just buy in and play it, but, um, you know, I think Elite is doing it right in a way, like, you know, they're they're saying this is a space trucker game, this is in, in the spirit of the original Elite and we're going to reproduce that, you know, with improvements and, and all that stuff. But, you know, they're putting out a good core. And I think, you know, Star Citizen could do something like that. They could have focused on, you know, space combat and the trading and, you know, that stuff. And put that out, had a good flight model, and then built on that. Said, okay, well, now, you know, we're going to do, you know, maybe put out the flight model and a persistent universe, if that's what they want. Boom. And then, you know, add on the single player experience and add on... The FPS stuff, like you can add all that stuff on after live. Now they're making this huge monolithic thing that I fear will just never come out. But I guess we'll see. As for the forums, I'm actually glad you kind of mentioned that. Now I do mention it kind of at the end of every show and in passing, but uh, I'll just I'll just spell it out right here. So the show does not have forums uh, per se. Honestly, because I know other podcasts who that you know that have started out and. You know, well, the show, this show has a, a good following. It's not massive. There aren't like, you know, 50,000 downloads or anything like that. So, um, you know, I think a forum, probably we just don't get enough traffic to support a pure forum. And frankly, I think forums are kind of on the way out on the internet just because we have all these other places. So the main place to come and, and talk, you know, to me and to the other listeners of the show is probably the Facebook group, facebook.com slash groups slash UMB cast. Uh, 
you know, that's where we have all our, all the, you know, our kind of deeper conversations where people post news stories, where people post opinions on things and uh, stuff like that. We have a really great community over there on Facebook. Uh, you can also follow the show on Twitter and interact with me there. But uh, Facebook is probably where we'll do a bit more of our long form type stuff. It's not quite as focused as a forum would be. But I think for the traffic that uh, that we get and the discussion that we have, the Facebook group is really, really ideal. Uh, so if you want to do anything like that, pop it over there. And uh, if you want me to read something on the show, sending me an email to podcast at umbcast.com is usually the best way to do that unless, you know, you post something on Facebook and say, oh, you know, if uh, you could read this on the show if you want. I don't usually read things from the Facebook group on the show just because, I don't know, I just don't. <laughs> usually I just I read emails, I, I play voicemails. Uh, so if you want something on the show, the way you did it, just great. Otherwise, uh, Facebook group, if you're on Facebook and if you're not, well, I'm on Twitter, so you can do that too. So thanks for the email again. Uh, really, really great to hear from you. And thanks for letting me know that you liked the news show. It's, uh, it's good to hear. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for All right, so. This week, we are discussing a very interesting series, Silent Service. So the Silent Service series, I have to say that slow because there's a lot of S's, uh, was developed and published by the Military Simulation Kings over at Microprose. Uh, The series consists of two games, the first of which is aptly named Silent Service, and the second of which is aptly named Silent Service 2. The first game was released way back when, when I was four years old in 19. 85. So as we do, let's discuss the genre. Silent Service is, of course, a military simulation. A military sims attempt to reproduce to varying degrees of realism the uh, execution and experiences of a military operation of some type. Uh, From the perspective of simulation, this generally involves controlling either a one-man vehicle or commanding a crewed vehicle as opposed to acting as uh, an individual soldier on the ground or a squad of soldiers on the ground, that falls more under action or strategy games, you know, depending on the implementation. Controlling vehicles honestly really matches up uh, to the simulation genre quite nicely as military vehicles in particular uh, tend to require quite a bit of training and skill to operate effectively. Now, this allows for some interesting challenges and what hopefully translates into a fun learning curve for new players. Uh, Military sims tend to be split Uh, structurally into a series of missions, which, as always, sit anywhere on the wide gamut of military mission objectives. Uh, These could be things like escort, search and rescue, search and destroy, patrol, infiltration, espionage, anything else you can think of uh, that you might be able to do with a military vehicle. Uh, These types of sims may focus on a single type of vehicle or try to represent a wide range of different entries in uh, a vehicle type. Uh, You see this quite often in aircraft sims, but the same can be said as for uh, other types, such as tank sims or uh, what we're looking at today, submarine simulators. In silent service, the submarine simulation video game from Ultra. First, you gotta find them. Then, if you're up to the challenge, you gotta get them in range. And if you're good enough, you'll put them on the ocean floor and live to tell about it. Find them, chase them, sink them in Ultra's silent service. The submarine simulation for Nintendo that puts you in command. Okay, let's talk story. So, we're playing a simulator. 
Uh, as with most, most other simulators we've covered on this show, uh, we're a little bit light here on what I would classify as actual story. Uh, what we have in this game is a lot of context and a lot of situation. Uh, what do I mean by that? Well, this game focuses on uh, submarine warfare in the Pacific theater of World War II. Uh, as we'll see when we discuss the game modes, there's quite a few scenarios to play through in the game. Uh, the scenario gives you a date, a location, a time of day, and a specific submarine to command. So this is your context and your situation. What it doesn't do is make you play any sort of specific role aside from sub-commander who has to complete the scenario. So your motivations, your tactics, and the disposition of your crew are all things you can either bring into the story yourself or not. As I said before, and uh, as some of you have even written in about before, I really love this type of storytelling or lack thereof, I guess. Uh, if you choose to invest the creativity and the brain power into it, this really does allow for much more immersion into the game world. I mean, you're creating your own world and your own characters outside of the restrictions of the game or outside of restrictions of technology. I did things like this in Red Baron and Aces of the Pacific and SimCity and, uh, and, and many other games. And I still remember those experiences and those, you know, fake stories to the, to, you know, to this day. Okay, since we're a little bit light in the story department, we're going to spend most of our time talking about what makes uh, what makes Silent Service really, really cool. It's gameplay. So Silent Service puts you in command of a variety of uh, U.S. Navy submarines in the Pacific during the Second World War. Your main goal in basically every scenario is the same one that real-world subcommanders had at the time sink as much Japanese shipping as possible by any means necessary while preserving your boat and your crew. So how does all this happen, you may ask? Well, launching the game, we're presented with some splash screens and then uh, simply asked to choose our scenario. Here we have three choices. First, torpedo slash gun practice. Here you get to hone your skills against stationary targets off of Midway Island. You can practice diving, surfacing, and approaching your targets for either torpedo or deck gun attacks. As always, the training is a good place to start to get a handle on the somewhat clunky control systems. Uh, next, we have the option for convoy action scenarios. Now, these are shorter scenarios which drop you right into a specific historical situation. Six scenarios are available. Selecting one does what I explained in the story section. It provides us context and situation. So let's take the first scenario named Plunger in the Inland Sea as an example. You are placed in command of the USS Plunger, a porpoise class submarine. Now this is an older class of submarine uh, that was launched in 1936 before the war began. This places certain technological limitations on the ship. Firstly, and perhaps most importantly, it is equipped with steam-powered torpedoes. And now it's time for a little bit of World War II Engineering 101. Uh, the game offers us two types of torpedoes, steam and electric. So Mark 14 steam torpedoes are equipped on the older subclasses, being that they are older types of torpedoes. Uh, they're powered by a steam turbine, which is turned by a jet of steam, created as a spray of water, is passed through an alcohol-burning torch. Now, these torpedoes have a minimum range of 450 yards. 
This means that if you are closer than that to your target, the torpedo will not cause any damage as it hasn't gone far enough away from your ship to arm itself. Now this is actually a safety feature. Uh, closer than that, and the torpedo may damage the launching submarine if it were to detonate. Uh, it had a maximum range of 4,500 yards at a top speed of 46 knots, which is pretty damn quick. Now, these Mark 14 steam torpedoes had a couple of issues. Firstly, the steam jet used to propel the whole thing would generate a very visible stream of bubbles in the wake of the torpedo. Uh, the whole point, of course, of a, of a submarine is to remain hidden at all times, uh, lest you be quickly destroyed by any enemy surface ships, destroyers, subhunters, things like that, on the surface. Now, a white line of bubbles tracing back to your ship on the surface of the ocean isn't really ideal in this situation. Uh, so, if your ship is equipped with steam torpedoes, the, uh, the accepted tactic, shall we say, is to launch your spread of torpedoes and then maneuver away very quickly so as not to... I guess, stay in your position, which has uh, just been revealed. Now, that wasn't the only problem with the Mark 14 steam torpedo. Uh, in addition to the bubbles, uh, the Mark 14 was designed, you know, in the 30s during the Great Depression uh, because of, you know, the lack of money and the lack of work and lack of stuff like that. Um, let's just say some corners were cut in, uh, in designing and testing the torpedoes. Uh, this resulted in a couple of additional issues. So first, you can set the running depth of, uh, of the torpedo. And you know, this is great. Except that when the torpedoes were tested, they were only really tested in as much water as the depth they were set. So if you set them to run at 10 feet deep, they were running like 11 feet of water. Uh, they were also tested with a dummy warhead on, you know, kind of the tip of the torpedo. Now, when used in the actual combat theater, uh, the Mark IV teams would actually tend to run about 10 feet deeper than they were set to run. Uh, this was due mainly to the fact that the live warheads were heavier than the test warheads, which caused the torpedo to reach neutral buoyancy about 10 feet deeper than, uh, than intended. So what was the fallout of this? Well, the torpedo would frankly just run right underneath the target ship and uh, totally miss. Next, the torpedo had two separate types of detonators. And guess what? Both of them were unreliable. How awesome is that? Uh, first, we have the standard contact detonator. Now, this would trigger when the torpedo hits something hard, like the hull of a ship, let's say. Well, sometimes it just wouldn't work. Uh, the torpedo was considered a dud when this happened. It would basically just smack the side of the target, smack the side of the ship, and... Uh, do nothing. It would go clang, maybe make a dent, something like that, and then just not blow up, which kind of sucks. Now, the other detonator was uh, a magnetic detonator. And this one is actually much cooler and, in theory, much more destructive than the straight-up contact detonator. So a magnetic detonator would sense a large metallic mass nearby. It had, like, a, a magnet detector, like a magnetism detector kind of a thing. Uh, and... When that large magnetic metallic object was within a certain range, the torpedo would detonate. Now, the intent uh, of this was basically for it to occur when the torpedo was directly underneath the keel. That's kind of like the center line of the hull of the enemy ship. But Joe, you may ask, 
If the torpedo doesn't hit the target, how does it do any damage? Well, this is actually pretty smart and has to do with hydrodynamics and forces and water and all that fancy stuff. But basically, if the torpedo explodes beneath the ship at you know a relatively close distance, it creates this expanding ball of positive pressure. Basically, there's an explosion, there's positive pressure that pushes outwards. Uh, and so that positive pressure will stress the hull of the ship upwards. Now, that might be enough to cause some damage, but it might not. But the next thing that happens is even better. So this expanding ball of positive pressure has now created basically a massive empty bubble of water, or, you know, a bubble that is empty of water beneath the ship. So as this pressure dissipates, water wants to rush in to fill this gap. Now, this creates a massive area of now negative pressure, which is basically a large vacuum right below the ship's hull. Now, this hull was just exposed to extreme positive pressure, and now it's exposed to extreme negative pressure pulling down on it. And if all the forces are right, this can basically rip a huge hole in the target's hull, or even crack it in half, and send it below very, very quickly. So as awesome as this sounds, the magnetic detonators were also pretty faulty. Uh, They had a tendency to do kind of the opposite of uh, what the contact detonators did. They would explode prematurely. And uh, by doing that, they'd cause basically almost no damage to the target. Uh, By 1944, these detonators were generally, I think, uh, even disconnected. 1943, 1944, uh, a lot of the torpedo rooms actually disconnected the magnetic detonators on the Mark 14s. Now, as the war progressed, these issues were corrected. And uh, by the end of the war, the Mark 14 steam torpedoes became much more effective. They became so effective, in fact, that they continued to be in service in the U.S. Navy until the late 70s. In 1975 to 1980, they, they finally were phased out of service. So an improvement to the Mark 14 came in late 1942, known and it was known as the Mark 18 electric torpedo. Now, it, instead of running on a steam generator or a steam turbine, it ran on an electric motor. This wasn't all good news because the torpedo ran 15, or sorry, 16 knots slower than the Mark 14 with a top speed of only 30 knots. However, the major advantage was that the electric motor didn't leave the telltale stream of bubbles in its wake. Now, this revolutionized submarine tactics and terrified surface fleets. Newer subs in the game mount these Mark 18 electric torpedoes. So now that we're experts on World War II submarine torpedoes, let's get back to the convoy op. So we have a sub with steam torpedoes and a hull test depth of 300 feet. Now this means that our maximum safe depth to dive to is 300 feet. Uh, We might be able to go deeper, but there's a good chance the pressure will crush the hull of the sub. Now obviously, when you're being hounded by destroyers, deeper is safer. Uh, Newer subs can go deeper up to 450 or 500 feet, I believe. But not this guy. This one's older. Uh, This sub's also equipped with radar, so uh, we can see our situation kind of uh, in overview on the map screen. So this first scenario puts us off the coast of southern Japan. Uh, We've come across a lone cargo ship steaming east at high speed. Uh, We usually start our scenarios pointing directly north on a heading of 000, and uh, we also know that it's January of the year 1942, and it is daytime. Now, this scenario is a little bit of an upgrade from uh, from the training. I mean, there's still no enemies that can shoot back at us around, but our target is not stationary anymore. He's moving. 
Uh, you may need to adjust your course to maintain an optimal firing solution on your torpedoes and sinking this ship wins you the scenario. Now, scenarios get more complex from there, culminating in a submerged daytime attack on a convoy of fast-moving Japanese destroyers and an aircraft carrier. Now, since the warships are faster than your sub, uh, you've got one chance to inflict maximum damage, and if you surface, they will blow you to kingdom come. So you control your sub from, uh, from a variety of views. Uh, you've got a map view where you can see an overview of combat, uh, You've got a periscope view from which you can uh, kind of look around in 360 degrees, even when you're uh, submerged and you're not below what's known as periscope depth. And uh, you can also fire your torpedoes and your deck gun from there with the deck gun only if you're surfaced. You can also look through the lookout binoculars that are located on the bridge, and you can take a look at a set of gauges where you get detailed information about things like your sub's depth, its heading, its speed, weapon status, time of day. And uh, finally, the last screen to look at is a damage control screen where you can check damage and view the status of repairs on your boat. Now, there's a few other major, shall we call, shall we say, components uh, to sub warfare that also bear some discussion here. Now, you'll notice I keep mentioning the time of day. Now, time of day, it usually doesn't matter much in games like this, but uh, for sub combat, time of day is a con critical component to any encounter uh most importantly it determines at what range you are detectable now during the day if your sub is surface it's detectable from up to twenty thousand yards away if you're running broadside to your target now that is broadside basically meaning so they can see the long side of your sub uh, if you're steaming straight towards them with what is referred to as minimum profile that detection range goes down to 8,000 yards. Now, ideally, uh, you always want to be facing directly toward or directly away from your target. Now, almost all boats and ships and any kind of seafaring vessel that you can probably think of uh, are longer than they are wide. So showing them your small side, the front or back, minimizes the size of target that uh, you are to them. And uh, this both makes you less detectable and a smaller target to hit if you're detected and uh, weapons are thrown at you. So because of this very long, uh, far-off detection distance, during the day, your attacks will likely be made submerged with just your periscope poking through the surface of the water. Now, with your periscope up, you'll only be detected between 6,000 and 2,000 yards. Fully submerged, that is, below periscope depth with your periscope retracted, you can hide from 2,000 to 800 yards from a target. And that'll be very, very helpful if you need to get away from a destroyer that is trying to blow you up. Now at night, these ranges go way down. Fully surfaced, you're visible from 3,000 to 1,000 yards and uh, at periscope depth from 2,000 to 800 yards. So night seems like the ideal time to attack. In some, in some ways, this is true. Uh, at night, you can make your attacks mostly surfaced. Now, on the surface, your sub runs its diesel engines. Uh, while they're loud, they can move you pretty quickly. Diesel can move you as quick as 20 knots. Uh, great to catch up to far-off freighters and cargo ships. Now, the problem with uh, diesel is, like any engine, it needs air to burn fuel. If you go underwater, your sub will run on its electric engines, run off of its batteries. 
Uh, now, these batteries are quite quiet, but they're much less powerful than the diesels and can only move you from 8 to 10 knots. So the more you can use your diesels, the more maneuverable you'll be. So you think, all right, great, you know, it's nighttime, they can't see me, I'll shoot them from the surface, I'll go fast, I'll do whatever I need to do, boom, 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 and they're dead. Well, the downside tonight is that while you are harder to spot, so are your targets who are likely running without their lights on. Uh, An ideal time to attack is actually dawn or dusk, since you kind of get most of the advantages of night with some slightly better detection ranges. Now, the final tactical part of sub-combat that uh, I want to talk about is firing solutions. So, the whole point of the cat-and-mouse game played by subs and surface ships revolves around the submarine trying to get what we'll call an optimal firing solution on the target. Now, this is all about positioning of the sub in relation to whatever ship is trying to sink. An ideal firing solution has the sub slightly ahead and on a perpendicular course to the target, with the target presenting its full broadside, its long side, as we discussed above, uh, to the sub. Now this gives the sub the largest target to hit with its torpedoes. So to fire your torpedoes, you as the captain and the person manning the periscope call out target data to be fed into what is known as the torpedo data computer. Now this isn't a computer like we know it, remember this is like 1943, uh, this was a an analog computer used on submarines to determine deflection angle, and that deflection angle would be programmed into the torpedo's internal gyroscope. The captain calculates range, speed, and what is known as angle on the bow. Uh, that's the difference between the target's course and the bearing of your periscope. Now, these numbers would be used to determine the proper deflection angle to program into the torpedo. Uh, Unless you set it otherwise, this is all calculated automatically by the game, so you don't really have to worry about it. But it's it's actually interesting and actually does help you in gameplay to kind of know what all these things mean. So the longest and kind of most, shall we say, potentially frustrating part of any engagement is setting up your optimal firing solution. Uh, In some scenarios, you already start off in kind of an ideal position, and you can fire right away. In others, you'll have to jockey your sub around. In fact, if you're behind your target, you'll probably have to do something called an end-around attack. And what this basically means is you sight your target, you figure out what their heading is, then you kind of move off, you move out of range, and then you surface to engage your faster diesel engines. You can then calculate how long you need to go at flank speed to uh, to get ahead of your target, go that distance, close, resubmerge, and try a new attack. So, you know, if you miss your chance and the, your enemy passes you by, you got to kind of figure out where they're going and then try and run ahead of them out of range so they can't see you and try and attack again. Now, luckily, in the game, you can compress time so the boring part of kind of running ahead of your enemy and all that stuff uh, goes by pretty quickly. Now, there's more about subcombat and tactics. I could frankly talk about it for the whole time, but uh, that's kind of the bulk of it. I mean, you've got a deck gun. Uh, destroyers also have a variety of weapons to uh, to attack you with. Uh, if they see you on the surface, they'll engage you with cannons. Otherwise, uh, they'll dump depth charges to try and blow you out of the water. Uh, your sub can take damage to its various systems, which can leave you unable to dive, unable to fire torpedoes, unable to use your periscope, or you know anything else. 
If you start taking on water, you may begin to sink. Now, sinking in a sub isn't the end of the world, but if you do sink too deep, you'll reach crush depth, and then it's game over. Your sub gets crushed by the pressure, and everybody dies. So that's sort of like combat in the game, the bulk of the game. Uh, The other gameplay type that I haven't really discussed is uh, how you'll kind of spend most of your time in the game. It's the War Patrol. Now, in the first game, you can command any of five war patrols. Uh, This allows you full freedom to patrol the uh, Pacific Ocean. Maps uh, are included with uh, Japanese shipping lanes and bases and other areas of interest. And on a war patrol, uh, you could feel free to proceed to these lanes or kind of go anywhere else uh, that you want in search of targets to destroy. You can also return to allied bases at Midway, Guam, the Marshall Islands, and a couple of bases on Australia to rearm, refuel, and repair. Combat and gameplay on war patrols is basically similar to what I describe in the scenarios. Uh, They're just longer with a bit more of an open world aspect to them. But once you do come across a target, the approach, the optimal firing solution, end arounds, all that stuff, exactly the same. So finally, when you begin any kind of mission, uh, you can set realism and difficulty levels. Skill levels range from midshipman to lieutenant to commander and then to captain. Uh, These affect accuracy of torpedoes, damage taken, and general enemy uh, skill levels. On top of this, there's some some, uh, specific reality settings that can be turned on or off. Uh, Limited visibility removes any ships from your map displays once they exit radar or sonar range. Uh, Convoy zigzags controls whether or not enemy convoys start to take evasive action once you're detected. If you turn this off, they'll just keep steaming in a straight line until they either encounter a landmass, which they have to go around, or they are attacked directly by torpedoes. Dud torpedoes uh, controls whether or not all of your torpedoes explode on impact. This is more prevalent during uh, the 1942-1943 time period, as we discussed kind of when we were chatting about the torpedoes, but if you have this on, wait, some of your tor- torpedoes might, uh, they might just not work. Port repairs only disables the ability for your crew to perform repairs at sea. You'll have to put into a port on a war patrol to affect any repairs. Expert destroyers creates the opportunity to encounter uh, convoys escorted by more challenging destroyers. They're kind of a little bit more uh, relentless in hunting you. They don't give up as easily. Uh, they might be more precise. But they might be better at detecting you. It just makes the game a bit more challenging. Turning on convoy search means you will not always begin with a convoy in radar range. You'll have to seek them out before engaging. This uh, may also make for a more difficult time getting into a good firing position. Finally, the most challenging realism option is angle on bow input. Now, this means the torpedo data computer will not calculate angle on the bow automatically. You'll have to do it based on your periscope bearing and the enemy's course and kind of being good at math so uh you know that's a kind of the most challenging option in the manual they basically say unless you know exactly what you're doing and you are an expert at this you should probably just leave this off because it's going to make things really really hard so as you may glean from all of this description explanation discussion silent service is quite a complex simulation of an even more complex real world scenario submarine combat is hard you're listening to the upper memory block podcast Time for Tech Focus. Okay, Tech Focus time. So here we are in 1985. Uh, Frankly, I always find this time frame interesting. Uh, It's very much before 
my prime gaming years, maybe not very much, but four or five years for sure. Because uh, in 1985, like I said, I was four. This was a time where the desktop computer market was still very much in flux. There was a lot of platform competition, and silent service was absolutely a product of that time. Opening the manual, an entire page and a half was dedicated to setting up the game on six different platforms. I mean, this game ran on Commodore 64 and 128, it ran on the Amiga, the Atari XL, XE, and ST, uh, the Apple II, and finally the PC or the Tandy 1000. Now, basically, uh, to run this game on PC, you needed an IBM computer with a color graphics adapter. That's CGA at four colors running at 320 by 200. You know, it's funny. Uh, I never actually realized that the CGA adapter worked with the original IBM PC. Way back in the day, my dad had a PC that uh, that he used for programming. You know, it had a monochrome monitor and I wasn't ever allowed to touch that uh, machine because it was for serious business. Uh, probably... Because of that, I always assumed that the PC didn't have the ability to display color graphics. Now, clearly I'm wrong because uh, I'm reading here that uh, that CGA hardware was actually introduced in 1981 along with the original PC. Aside from a PC and color graphics, there were really no other requirements on the uh, on the PC platform to run Silent Surface. Uh, you know, you could control the game with either a joystick or a keyboard. And frankly, while I connected my joystick to play, because I kind of figured, hey, joystick, it's got to be better. I actually found the game much more enjoyable with pure, pure uh, keyboard control. The manual says a joystick is recommended, however. So you know what? If you want to give it a whirl, feel free. Now, the game didn't have an install or anything like that. Uh, we're back to PC booter here. So to play the game, you simply put the disc into your deactivator machine and started it up. The system would boot from the disk and start the game. Now, we've talked about PC booters quite a bit over the last few months, thanks thanks to uh, info from uh, quite a few listeners. Now, suffice it to say, I'm not going to get into all the details, but uh, PC booters allow the game to bypass the loading of the full operating system into memory and run themselves in kind of a more stripped down environment to free up more resources for the game itself to use. There's a whole bunch of other stuff that might be behind that, but basically that's that's the technical explanation of uh, of a PC booter. Now on other platforms, such as the Commodore 64 and the Amiga, you did launch the game from within the OS and you'd have to swap out disks and, and all that stuff, but uh, on the PC, just put in the disk, run the game, game starts, hooray. And uh, you can kind of see, it's interesting on kind of the more modern versions, you could see the games that were kind of ported over from PC booters because they have no way to exit the game. So you basically have to either Alt-Tab out and uh, close the DOS box window or something like that because, yeah, there's no way to exit it because it's a PC booter. So if you originally wanted to exit the game, you turned off your computer. As for sound, the game sound is incredibly rudimentary. Uh, You'll notice I haven't really played any music in this part. Well, that's because uh, there is none. (laughs) Uh, It had no music, and it had some very, very simple PC speaker effects representing engine noise, torpedo launches, and gunfire explosions. Frankly, the sound is actually a little bit jarring, especially when it's right in your ears in in headphones. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for... Okay, let's talk dev story. So, Silent Service is an early microprose game, which basically means that it is a Sid Meier game. Now, we all know Sid Meier from previous episodes where I talked about Railroad Tycoon uh, and Pirates and also the big guy that I haven't covered yet, Civilization. Well, 
despite all the games I've covered already, Silent Service is one of the genre where he got his start. Military simulations, and I haven't actually talked about those as of yet. So, as I'm fond of pointing out, Sid Meier was born in the Canadian city of Sarnia, Ontario. Uh, He then migrated ever so slightly south across the border to attend University of Michigan, where he earned a degree in computer science. Uh, This degree brought him to a job at General Instruments Corporation and uh, as a business systems engineer. Uh, He found himself at a trade show in Las Vegas along with Bill Steely, the exuberant and outgoing director of business development at GIC, General Instruments Corporation. So one evening, after losing some money at a table, uh, the men wandered into the computer game arcade at uh, the casino they were at. Now, in 1982, which is the year that it was, the Atari ST was the hot machine and, as luck would have it, a stand-up coin-op version of the Atari ST-based Red Baron game was uh, sitting available to be played. Since the two were avid computer gamers, they decided to play against each other. Now, Steely was an ex-Air Force fighter pilot, so he figured he'd be able to wipe the floor with this nerdy programmer guy, his buddy, uh, but he was to be taught a lesson. After a round or two, Meyer figured out the game's scoring algorithm, and uh, he beat Steely pretty handily. Now, Steely complained the game was too unrealistic, and Meyer agreed And as I've explained in previous episodes, he basically said he could make a better flight sim in a week. Steely, being the gung-ho, go-getter type that he was, took up Meyer on his challenge and said if he could make such a game, Steely would be able to sell it to every military officer's club in the country. Well, it took him more than a week, but uh, he came out with Hellcat Ace, the first game from the company both he and Steely had founded called Microprose. Oh. After this, Meyer continued making military simulation-style games, honing his design skills, and taking advantage of new platforms and new technologies. However, most of these games related to air combat and stuff like that, most likely because of Steely's background as an Air Force pilot. They had a great resource sitting right there in the office. Now, while working on F-15 Strike Eagle, Meyer was reading a book entitled Clear the Bridge by Richard H. O'Kane, who was the commander of the USS Tang, a submarine that saw service in the Pacific in World War II. Now, Meyer took a great interest in the tense situations, quick decision-making, and decisive action that characterized undersea combat in the Second World War. He also quickly realized that the uh, style and variety of submarine combat was something that was well-suited to computer-based simulations that he was becoming well-known for. Submarine combat is a game of patience. You know, the action is nerve-wracking, but it's not by any means fast. Now, modeling this more slow, kind of patient action was ideal for machines of, you know, the early to mid-80s with limited memory and limited computing power. In fact, unlike his flight simulators, which still had to take into account quick action, this slower seafaring kind of environment would allow Meyer to build out additional aspects of the world which could be tracked separately from the main screen's action. So what he did first was he started to build out this world. Uh, you know, after much additional research, he uh, he became focused on the fact that, yes, he wanted his submarine game to focus on the entire Pacific theater, not just a single area or a single battle. He really wanted to recreate the long patrol missions he had read about in Clear the Bridge. 
By the way, once I realized Meyer based the game on this book, I grabbed it for my Kindle off of Amazon. It's there. Uh, As I'm reading through, I can absolutely see why he was inspired to make this game. You know, the author, the former captain of the Tang, uh, was able to spin a very compelling tale of life and action aboard his submarine. You know, what issues they had with limited communications, relatively primitive technologies, uh, and training up a green crew in wartime. It's a very compelling read if you're into military memoirs. Uh, You know, I I will recommend this one. I'll link it in the show notes. So if you guys want to take a look, feel free. Uh, I'm about quarter of the way through. I'm going to go through the whole thing. It's, uh, It's definitely keeping my attention. So first things first, if Meyer wanted to represent the Pacific, he needed to make the Pacific. Uh, He mapped out the entire Pacific theater in quite a bit of detail and used this map as the basis for the game. From the map, he built out an entire mapping engine, which uh, became the base engine for running the game's world. Into it, he fed data about land masses, their precise shapes and locations. Uh, And so these maps in the game could be zoomed into an area of 100 by 100 yards with a usable level of detail. In addition to these land masses, sea depth was also represented, including shoals and shallow water that you could run your boat into. Now, the mapping system also contained information regarding Japanese shipping corridors and traffic levels along those routes, uh, in addition to traffic around cities and bases and other areas, uh, which changed according to the time period that the player found themselves in. Now, of course, one of the major challenges in storing this level of detail for an area as huge as the Pacific, from basically Midway Island to Australia to the coast of China, was fitting all of it onto a computer with you know 64K of memory. We're talking Commodore 64, Atari uh, XT kind of a thing, and Tandy 1000. Like These are not machines with gigabytes of RAM. In fact, they're not even machines with 640K of RAM. They have 64, like the, the low-end ones that the, they were trying to build to had 64K of RAM. Now, I wasn't able to find much information as to how exactly they accomplished this, but I imagine fitting all this data into 64K of memory uh, consisted of having kind of a very interesting data dictionary design along with either dynamic loading which I don't know if they could do or not, or uh, a set of arrays kind of similar to what Peter Molyneux did with uh, the map data in Populous. However they did it, though, the level of information detail in Silent Service was impressive. Now, this set of data was used in two ways. First, the whole map system was used to keep track of all ships, submarines, torpedoes, and other objects in an engagement from kind of an overall global perspective. Now, that same data set was translated with filters by the first-person views. So, you know, if uh, if your periscope was looking in a certain direction, it would filter out only the objects that lay in that direction within a certain view distance and would display them on the screen. Now, one side effect of this reuse is that only four torpedoes could be in the water at once. Now, I imagine this is because four object memory locations, shall we call them, uh, are reserved for torpedoes. If you launch a fifth, the oldest one is dropped from the game and the uh, the, the new one replaces it. There's definitely a memory limit on that functionality. Now, generally, this isn't a huge problem, but uh, if you're launching a spread of torpedoes against multiple targets, you may need to have more than four torpedoes in the water at once, so that's something you'll have to uh, keep in mind. So another problem in making, the ga- making a game that uh, revolves around submarine combat is one of time. 
As I said, submarine versus uh, surface ship engagements in the real world can last many hours and often result in the sub having a poor firing solution and just kind of giving up the chase. Obviously, stalking a ship for hours and then leaving doesn't make for a very interesting game. So default time compression was added. One minute of in-game time passes in 15 real-life seconds. Uh, This increases the pace of the action just enough so a player doesn't get bored, but not so much that they get overwhelmed when the crap finally hits the fan. Also, an additional time acceleration function was put in to accelerate the long process of getting into positions such as in end arounds and stuff like that. You could really compress time to accelerate that travel. So all this data and gameplay, along with randomly generated encounters and war patrols, made for a game with an unprecedented amount of variety. Uh, You might encounter large convoys, small ones, with escort, without escort, aircraft carriers, shipping outside of established lanes, lone targets, fast destroyers, which kind of force you to dive near crush depth. They also had the uh, concept of of, uh, temperature gradients under the water, so if you dove under a temperature gradient, then uh, you wouldn't be detected. I mean... Meyer and his team had a very unique and very replayable game on their hands here. So the game released in, I believe, June or maybe July of uh, 1985 and was an instant hit. Uh, Meyer continued his trait of creating complex games that were still approachable. Now, Meyer said that for his games, when it came down to a decision between realism and fun, fun always won out. Silent Service did a great job of capturing the action and complexity of sub-combat, but still making it approachable for kind of uh, novice players. In 1989, I guess maybe because of this success, Ultra Games and uh, Rare did a port of the game to uh, the NES, and that's actually uh, the commercial that you heard kind of more at the beginning when I got into the story was uh, actually for the, uh, the NES version. So this led to Silent Service 2 in the year 1990. Uh, Meyer didn't work on this game directly, and uh, realistically, it was really just an upgrade of the original game to support VGA graphics and sound. Uh, The concept of a career mode was introduced, as well as more intuitive controls and smoother gameplay. Uh, It's a really, really great upgrade that, uh, when it came out, received just as much praise as the original, and uh, frankly, it's the game that I uh, spent a bit more time playing. So where can we get Silent Service today? Well, both the games, 1 and 2, are available on GOG.com in a single pack for $5.99 US. They both run without any issues on my Win uh, Windows 8 machine. Uh, I didn't try getting my MT32 working on Silent Service 2 because, frankly, I've been really busy this week. But uh, I imagine if the support is there, you might have to futz around with it a little bit, but I imagine it would work uh, just fine. I'm Francisco Ruiz, and together with my good friend Paul Powers and a rotating guest host, we make up the Retro Rewind podcast. 
Twice a month, we pick a movie or video game from 15 or more years ago and discuss whether it is still worth revisiting today. So if you've thought about rewatching The Rocketeer, playing back through Mega Man X, or you're just a child of the 70s and 80s like us, you should check us out for laughs, for nostalgia, and definitely for our take on what's a classic and what's second class. Find us at RetroRewindPodcast.com, where you can subscribe on iTunes, RSS, and more. So, big question. Does Silent Service hold up today? Well, if you're looking for fast-paced action, this isn't the game series for you. But if you're looking for an interesting simulation that depicts the anxiety and the strategy of submarine combat, I think you'll like this one. The first game is a little bit clunky in the control department, but once you get the hang of it, it's actually a lot of fun. Uh, Silent Service 2 is even more enjoyable. I didn't talk about it that much, and that's because it's frankly not that much different, but I mean, there's better graphics, easier to use controls. Uh, I mean, it's not hard to recommend these games if you enjoy simulations. In fact, if you go to my Silent Service 2 video over on YouTube and jump to about an hour and 19 minutes, I actually whoop when I sink a ship. I was down to my last torpedo, I was damaged, and I had scored, and uh, I scored a hit. And you know, in another game, Killing an enemy would not be cause for celebration. It's just another thing that you do and you're going to kill 500 more of them. But in silent service, if you're doing things right and there's realism and this and that, I mean, you work for it. Now, these are games where patience and planning pay off a lot. If you're good with that, give them a try. You are listening to the Upper Memory Podcast. Okay, that's that. Thanks to everyone for listening and emailing and doing all the stuff that you do. So next time, I'm going to hit another big adventure series. It's not LucasArts. It's not Sierra. Nothing like that. I'm going to be visiting Revolution Software's Broken Sword series. These are a little bit newer. I've never played them, so it should be lots of fun. And I know a lot of you have been asking for these for a while. You can send email about this show. You can send audio comments about this show, about other shows, about anything you want to podcast at umbcast.com. I want to thank Rick Moyer for his great audio work. Uh, you can find him over at moyermultimedia.com. And uh, don't forget, if you enjoy the show, you can become my boss over at patreon.com slash umbcast. If you find some value from the show, please consider joining my patrons in donating a buck or two per episode to help me with the cost. And in fact, right before I started recording this show, I was out on a bike ride and I checked my phone because I was waiting, uh, waiting for Fran to come out of the store. And uh, it turns out that we just hit $75 just today. So that means that I have now got to uh, organize some group discussion shows. So if you guys want send me some stuff about what you want to talk about. Uh, the five and $10 backers on, uh, on the Patreon or uh, get first dibs on being on that. But, uh, you know, if they don't want to, I'll open it to the, uh, to the general public, to the general listenership. But, uh, if you guys have some topics you might want us to discuss, then, uh, let me know. And now since we're making 75 bucks a show, we are aiming for the hundred dollar a show, uh, goal, which is uh, basically monthly giveaways, either games or stuff or swag. Since I started making a little bit of swag, uh, once a month, I'm going to give a thing away to, to somebody and, uh, we'll just need uh, 25 more bucks and we'll get there. And, uh, that'll be real fun. 
So as always, you can check out the show notes for this show and all the other shows at umbcast.com. Join the Facebook group. Like I said, not the forums. The forums, quote unquote, are here at the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash umbcast. Follow the show on Twitter at twitter.com slash umbshow. Me personally at twitter.com slash billybob476. Find the show on YouTube where I put my playthrough videos where I play games poorly at uh, youtube.com slash umbcast. And subscribe to the show on iTunes, stream us live at Stitcher, leave me reviews, and that is that. And I will see you next time for Broken Sword here in the Upper Memory Block. Battle control terminated. You've been listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast with Joe Mastriani. For more information on the podcast, visit umbcast.com. That's umbcast.com. Write to Joe today at podcast at umbcast.com. That's podcast at umbcast.com. So what shall it be? Do you join the unity or do you die here? Join the unity.